0: Amen, he lives. Praise the Lord and Good morning again. So, if you have a Bible with you, open up the Luke chapter 24, and if you don't, that's okay. We'll have the uh, Scripture on the screens for you today to read along with us, but Luke 24 uh, is where we're going to be, verses 1 through 12, and I'd like to go ahead and read uh, those verses so we can get a good glimpse of this story before we dig into it, and then I'll pray for us and ask the Lord to bless us as we hear His Word and receive it today. So, Luke 24. Verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words The linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Would you pray with me? Jesus, again, we come before you today to worship. You are the living God, and there is a tomb in Jerusalem today that is empty. You are King of all things. And now through your powerful word, would you speak to our hearts? Convict us, encourage us, and shape us into who you want us to be. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's what you need to know about me. There there are a few things in my life that would compel me to run. Okay, Running through the airport to catch a flight, sure. Uh, running down the street to get the ice cream truck before it leaves my street. Absolutely, right? Uh, running after my kids everywhere we go all the time. Yes. Running for fun? Not so much. Not so much. But here's the thing about running. Whatever you're running from or, or to, running itself implies a sense of urgency, right? Right? And in some situations, you would even say that it implies a sense of desperation. And and it's really that urgent and desperate feeling, it's that kind of running that we see in this passage that we just read. You see, Peter, when he hears that something has happened at the tomb of Jesus, he immediately gets up. And, and runs like he's never ran before. He runs to see if this is true. To see if the tomb is actually empty. Now, in John's account of this in his gospel, he tells us that John ran too. But, but Luke here is, is focused on Peter's situation. And that's what I want us to look at today. I want us to look at the resurrection of Jesus, but from the vantage point of Peter. And to really seek to answer this question today. Why is Peter running? Why is he running to this tomb? And what is he really running after? Now, before we get into the rest of this story, first just a little bit about Peter and, and who he was. Now, Peter was an ordinary guy. He was a fisherman uh, who lived on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he, he had a small fishing business with his brother Andrew. And he journeyed as a disciple with Jesus and the other 11 disciples for three years. And, and really, during those three years, we, we see in the New Testament historical records uh, a good account of his life, and, and kind of we, we learn a lot about him. You see, Peter seems to be pretty prideful, okay? Peter's, he's the kind of guy who, you know, he thought there was, there was nothing that he couldn't do, right? He, he's the kind of person who would, would act rashly without thinking. He was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Peter was a man, that's it, yeah. <laughs> he was a man. And hey, we're all guilty, right? But, but before we're too quick to judge Peter, you know, I think today we're going to see we all, all of us are, are more like him, really, than we would like to admit. And, and on a deeper level, the truth is we all have the same challenges in our heart. So, so this morning, as we look at the resurrection through the story of Peter, as we look at the resurrection through the story of Peter, I want us to see three stages or or three chapters, if, if you will, of this story. We see a sickness that Peter has, a desperation, and healing hope. A sickness, a desperation, and a healing hope. So the first thing we see in this story of Peter is a sickness. Now, to understand why Peter is running to the tomb on that Sunday morning, we need to go back to Thursday night first. You see, the night before Jesus would be crucified on that Friday morning, he gathered with his disciples in an upper room in a house in Jerusalem. And they were there, and Jesus is teaching them many things and just spending some really important crucial time with them before he would endure the cross. And after partaking in what we now call the Lord's Supper, Jesus told them that they would all desert him later that night as he was being arrested and as he would be put on trial before the Sanhedrin court that Jesus predicted, listen, you're, you're all going to fall away. You're not going to stick with me through this. In Matthew 26, Matthew records this in verses 33 through 35. Listen to Peter's response. When Jesus says, you're going to desert me, you're not going to stand with me, look at what Peter says. Peter said, okay, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So, so, so notice Peter corrects Jesus twice. Who does he think he is? You see, Peter is sick. Peter is sick with pride. His heart is full of self-sufficiency. He doesn't need anyone telling him how things need to go, right? Peter knows, and and Peter has a strength that that apparently no one else does. Or at least that's how he thinks of himself. But this problem is not unique to Peter. You see, really, this, this is the basic problem with all of humanity, with every single one of us. Now, you can trace this all the way back to the beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, where our first father and our first mother, the first humans God created, they had this same problem. They thought that what God had for them was not good enough. They were not content with what the Lord had given them. And he had given them everything. He had given them a perfect paradise, a perfect place to live and to love and to flourish. Yet, it just wasn't good enough. In their pride, they wanted more. In their pride, they thought that they could determine the standards of living that they needed to to satisfy what they thought they deserved. In other words, they asserted themselves above God as the ultimate authority. And you know what? All single or all humans, we have all inherited this sin nature, all of us. We are all born into this way of thinking that we can be our own authority, that we know what's best for us. Hey, thanks God. Uh, we appreciate you helping us out sometimes. We appreciate you giving us stuff sometimes. We will call you when we need you. In the meantime, I've got things under control. That's the mindset Peter had. That's the mindset that we all carry with us. We think we know a better way. But see, this kind of thinking, this kind of thinking and believing, it, it leads us to believe, since we think we know what's, what's best for us, that we can be our own judge and jury of our own behavior. Right? So, so we, we like to think that we can earn God's approval as we live a good and decent moral life according to the on, the own, uh, standards and authority that we've set for ourselves. Right, So in our pride, we like to think, you know what, if I can just be a good person, I'm sure God will let me into heaven, right? I mean, as long as the good in my life outweighs the bad, I'm sure the Lord will accept me and let me into heaven. I'm sure he won't have a problem with me because I'm trying really hard down here. I'm trying to be good and my good does outweigh my bad. You know, you've probably seen this image or a statue of Lady Justice, right? And especially in the judicial judicial system. Lady Justice, uh, she's blindfolded, she's holding a sword, and she's holding some scales, right? And so those scales symbolize weighing the evidence in a case. And I think a lot of us think that that's what God's going to do. When we die or when He returns, we think we're going to stand before God and He's going to put all of your good behavior on one side of the scale and all of your bad behavior on the other side of the scale. And really, at the end, it's just just wishful thinking. We're just hoping. right? We have no solid ground to stand on. We're just hoping that maybe our good outweighs our bad. You see, this is deeper than just a simple pride issue, though. It's pointing to a deeper problem in Peter, and it's pointing to a deeper problem in all of us. It's a spiritual sickness that we all naturally have. Our pride and our abilities to perform and live a good life is truly a sickness because it's not true. You see, the truth is that we cannot stand on our own before a holy, perfect God. We'll never be good enough. Like, how do you know? How do you know if you've been good enough? Where's the standard? If it's a standard you've created in your own head, there's no way to truly measure that, right? So we'll never know if we've been good enough to earn God's love and and His approval and acceptance of us because the Bible tells us that we are sick. We are so sick with something called sin, and that word sin, it, it's, it's lost in translation sometimes, but that word sin means it is anything that goes against God's intentions for us. Anything. God created us to love him above anything else in this world. More than anything, he wants your heart. But we give ourselves to so many other things, don't we? And a lot of those things we give ourselves to are good Right? We give our hearts to people. We give our hearts to stuff and and material possessions and things and and career and all these things. And ultimately, God says, Look, you can have those things, but ultimately, I want your heart. Give yourself, your whole self, to me. And so, sin is anything, anything we're holding back and saying, You know what? I'm going to keep this for myself. I'm not going to give my whole self to the Lord it's anything that goes against God's good design and his intentions for us and how he's told us to live in his word but the worst the worst part about this sickness this disease called sin is that it separates us from God it actually literally puts a distance between us and God why because God is perfect he's holy And And that word holy means that he is completely pure. There is no evil or wickedness or sin within him. He is good and only good comes from him. And so we, being tainted with this spiritual sickness called sin, we are distanced from a perfect holy God. We can't stand in his presence because of our sin. And so this gap between us and God, no human can bridge that gap. There's nothing we can do. No matter how hard you try to be a good person in this life, no no matter how much you contribute to society, no no matter how much money you donate to nonprofits or a church or whatever, you cannot. You can't do it. You can't bridge the gap that has been created by your own choices to rebel against God. You can't bridge that gap. But see, it's our pride. It's our pride in thinking that we can that in the end, leads us to despair and destroys us. Because when we inevitably fail, we're crushed by our failure. That's exactly what happened to Peter that same night. Just a couple hours after he told Jesus, I'm never going <laughs> to forsake you, Lord. I'm never going to leave you. I'll be there all the way through thick and thin. Even if I have to die with you, I'll be there. That's how good I am. What You wait and see. But look what Luke says in verse 54 through 60 of chapter 22. Then they seized him, speaking of Jesus. So they arrested Jesus. They led him to a court to be tried. They led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Okay, so let's give Peter at least enough credit to say, all right, so he's following at a safe distance. Okay, sure, Peter, you're trying but when they, had kindled, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl seen him as he sat in the light and looking, looking closely at him said, This man also was with them. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You, you also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. You see, Galileans, they had an accent, right? You could probably hear it in my voice, right? I've tried to shake it. I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about the southern accent. I've just got it, all right? These Galileans, they had an accent. And when they're gathered around that fire, he was in a different region of Palestine. And so... People recognize that this was a different accent. And, and so they're saying, No, 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 you're, you're one of them. You're, you're with Jesus. And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, I don't know what you're talking about, man. And immediately, immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. You see, Peter thought he could stand. Do you see that? Peter thought he had the strength. He thought he was going to be good enough. He thought that he could flex his moral muscles. He could flex those good muscles and prove to everyone how how good of a person and how strong he really was. But when it really came down to it, he fails. And he fails miserably. I mean, this is disgraceful. This is such a disgraceful way to turn your back on someone because Jesus had invested himself into Peter. He had invested his life into Peter for three years and just helped Peter so much along the way. And even more than that, as we know now, Jesus was about to invest everything. He was about to give up his life so Peter could find true life. But Peter is blind to this truth. Because of the sickness in his sinful heart that just keeps him focused on himself. That's what sin does. Sin, it it just keeps our attention on ourselves. It it prevents us from really thinking a whole lot about God. It prevents us from thinking a whole lot about other people and how to love God, how to love others. Because all we can think about is ourselves ourselves. I think one of sin's goals is to make us narcissists. It just wants you to cave in on yourself and put all the attention there so that nothing else in the world, all the good things you're supposed to love, don't matter as much as your own feelings and emotions. And that's what we see in Peter's heart. It's a sickness. But the story's not over. We also see a desperation we see a desperation starting to form in Peter's heart. Look at this in Luke 22, verses 60 through 62. After they recognize Peter for that third time, and he denies even knowing Jesus. It says immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, just can you imagine, though? Just try to imagine yourself in that courtyard where Jesus is being tried and and Peter... He started around this campfire, but people started recognizing him, maybe in the glow of the fire, and so he, he backs away a little bit. But then that third time, someone says, no, 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 you are. You're one of him. You're, you're with him. And when Peter says, I'm not, I don't know what you're talking about, immediately, Jesus, from across the courtyard, turns his head and looks at Peter and makes eye contact. And Peter, all he could do in the moment is to just leave and he completely loses it. You see, he can't stand on his own. He realizes in this moment that his goodness is not good enough. I mean, sure, when when comparing himself to the other disciples, I don't know, maybe he has a case. But when he looks into the eyes of the creator of all things, holy good and true, Peter has nothing. He has nothing. He has no case. He can't stand. But his response, don't miss his response because his response changes everything. This is where we see a turning point in Peter's life. Peter then leaves the courtyard and just loses it, right? I mean, he doesn't just cry. It says he weeps bitterly over his failure. He realizes in the moment what he's done. You see, Peter is desperate in this moment. He is desperate for forgiveness and grace. He's remorseful over his mistake, over his sin. He's finally come to an end of himself. And that's exactly You see, where Peter found himself that night, listen, that is exactly where we all must find ourselves at some point. We all must find ourselves in this same place where we come to an end of ourselves. Because in order to cling to Christ for eternal life, you first have to let go of yourself. And that's exactly what is happening in Peter's heart. I've heard another pastor say it this way in regards to coming to Jesus, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. All you need is desperation. Listen, there's this false belief out there in the world that, that well, you know, I, I don't have my life all put together I don't really belong at a church. I don't, I don't belong coming to the Lord. I, I can't come to Jesus yet. I need to kind of get my ducks in a row first or I, I need to clean up my life a little bit or I need to lose this addiction. Let me tell you something, that's baloney. Jesus says, come all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But as you come to him, you have to seek him in desperation. With humility, knowing that you don't have what it takes to stand. And that's okay. Because David says in Psalm 51, something that is incredible. Verses 16 and 17. David said, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. You see, Jesus doesn't want to see how well you can impress him. That's not what he's looking for. He's not looking to see how good you can be to impress him and and get his attention and, and get his approval of you. He's not looking to see how well you can impress other people. How you so desperately want others in your life, your spouse, your kids, your, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers to think so highly of you and, and you're just trying to, to make it look like you've got your life all put together nice and neat and you come to church with a smile and someone asks you how you're doing and you say, I'm great, but the truth is at night you can't sleep and the truth is you're drowning in anxiety and fear over all kinds of issues. Because on the outside, you're trying to make people think that you've got it together. And on the inside, you're broken. And Jesus says, it's okay. It's okay to be broken, but it's not okay to stay there. Come to me, he says. Broken with a contrite heart. With desperation. Jesus said in Matthew sixteen twenty four, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Do you see what's happening, though, in Peter? As he weeps, as he breaks down outside that courtyard and and just weeps bitterly, he's coming to this realization and, and his desperate need for forgiveness. But here's a valid question. How can he be forgiven for such a terrible thing? I mean, he's turned his back on the Creator God. He has turned his back on the one who's giving his life for him. It's such a disgraceful sin. It's such a terrible thing he's done. How can Peter be forgiven? The author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 22, that a very interesting statement, he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. that's interesting because he's referring back to the Old Testament when the people had to actually sacrifice an animal to symbolize the atonement for sin. They knew that their faith could not be in their own works. It had to be in some kind of of atonement, of, of shedding of blood. Now, what is that? Well, you see, Romans 6.23 sheds some light on this. It tells us that the price the price of sin is death. So the shedding of blood, in other words, death, is the only thing that can actually pay for sin. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is that death must be accounted for. Death cannot go unaccounted for. I'm sorry, sin sin cannot go unaccounted for. Because think about this. I don't want to serve a holy God who lets evil and wickedness and sin go eternally unpunished. All sin, all evil, all wickedness, whether it was by you telling a little lie or an evil dictator thousands of years ago, all sin and evil will be punished in the end. It will be. Because God is not holy and he's not a good and just righteous judge of all people if he doesn't punish it. A perfectly holy God cannot let sin and evil go unpunished. And so guess what? That is terrible news for me and you. That's terrible news for us. Because we are sick with this sin problem. But there's good news. You see, the good news is that on that next day, on Friday morning, Jesus would die for our sins. And you know, I think we should say it this way Jesus would die in our place. Do you see that? Not just some kind of transaction for sins in general. No, 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 no. Jesus died in your place. It was the death that you and I should have died. You see, we should have to pay the price of death for our own rebellion against our Creator. It's treason against our King. We should pay that death penalty. But Jesus steps in on that Friday morning on the cross and says, no, 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 no. I will pay the penalty for him. I will pay the penalty for her as their substitute. So his blood is shed as the price that must be paid for our sin. He takes our sin on himself. He absorbs the wrath of God on himself, instead of it coming to you, instead of it being poured out on you, Jesus takes it on himself. And you know what? It's the greatest exchange ever because in exchange, you get his righteousness. You get his life. You get his goodness credited to your soul's account. He pays your price of sin on himself and gives you his righteousness through faith in his name. Now, let's, let's press the pause button. Let's go back to where we started. Let's go back to Peter running to the tomb just a couple of days after the death of Jesus and after his denial. Now listen, I don't want to interject anything that isn't actually here but I just can't help but think that Peter had to be just overwhelmed with guilt and shame can you you imagine how miserable I'm sure he didn't sleep between Friday and Sunday how miserable he was that he didn't get the chance to tell Jesus that he was sorry before he died that he didn't get the chance to tell him that he loved him before he died In light of that, I can't help but think that Peter, when the women come back from the tomb, he he hears the tomb is empty. And I just can't help but think that running to the tomb on that Sunday morning, Peter is running in desperation for the hope of forgiveness. Hoping that Jesus is alive. Because here's the thing, guys. If Jesus is still dead on that Sunday morning, then death wins. If Jesus is still dead, then sin wins. Sin rules. And there's no breaking that curse. But if he's alive, if he's alive, sin no longer rules. Death is defeated. But you see, Jesus doesn't have to stay dead, right? The penalty of sin has been paid. So God the Father accepted the payment. He raises Jesus to life. Jesus is alive. And this, this changes everything. I mean, it may have been different before, but no, no, no. This this changes everything. Because we see lastly in Peter's life a healing hope. A healing hope. You see, because Jesus is alive, sin no longer has to reign over us. This terrible sickness of sin that we all suffer from, I mean, it it destroys us like a cancer eating away at our soul. It it ruins our emotions. It destroys our relationships with others. And and it plays with our mind. It it ruins our thought patterns and our psychological well-being. Sin ruins everything. It does. But there's a cure. You see, like Peter we first have to come to the end of ourselves. You have to be desperate. You have to be desperate for His grace. You have to be compelled to turn away from whatever idols are in your life that you're laying yourself before, that you're serving, that you're loving, that you're worshiping more than God. You have to lay them down. You have to turn away from those. And you have to find hope and peace in the only one who can bring it. Not in those things, but only through Christ. You have to turn away from that sin and we have to run. We have to run to Jesus for that forgiveness and that healing hope. We all have to run to that empty tomb. That's why Peter ran that day to the tomb. When no one else would. When everybody else thought it was ridiculous, Peter got up and he ran out of desperation, just knowing that he needed to see, to know, is Jesus alive? And after Jesus rose from the grave, he remained remained on earth for 40 days. But after that, Peter and Jesus, you know, they still hadn't had a conversation. Peter had seen Jesus alive after he rose from the grave that Sunday, but they, they still hadn't had that conversation about what happened that night in the courtyard around the fire. Until John 21. Would you look with me real quick at John 21, verses 4 through 8. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. So so what's happening? See, the disciples are fishing. They're back in Galilee on the sea and they're fishing. Peter's with them in the boat. Jesus is on the shore. Yet the disciples, it says, did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. No. He said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, look at this. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, which kind of seems like the logical thing to do, right? Dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. I'm sorry, I can't help but think of the scene in the movie Forrest Gump where he sees Lieutenant Dan on the dock and Forrest is on the shrimp boat. You know what I mean? He just jumps off the boat. It just starts, the boat's still going. He just jumps off and swims because he's so excited. And I think that's exactly the thought in Peter's heart right here. He is so excited to see Jesus and he's still got that desperate hope of forgiveness. Except this time he's swimming instead of running. He's desperate for healing hope and restoration. And you know what? That's exactly what Jesus gives him. Look at the rest of this. Look at John 21, verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything you know. I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. But do you see that? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? With the smell of, of that fire cooking the fish. You can't help but think that Jesus is recreating that scene from the courtyard just a few weeks ago where Peter was around a different fire and three times he denied even knowing Jesus and now Jesus around this fire asks him three times, do you love me? You see, I don't think Jesus is testing Peter as much as he is affirming that He loves Peter and that He forgives him. Jesus is restoring and redeeming Peter's life. He's given Peter a healing hope in this moment for a future. A future on this earth. Yes, but most importantly, an eternal future. You see, now Peter's hope as he has these flashbacks back to the courtyard and that terrible mistake he made. No, he doesn't focus on that. Now he's focused on the redeeming power and love of Christ. Peter now, his hope is not in his moral performance, but in Christ and what Christ has done for him whose perfect record has now been credited to Peter's account. That's what we call salvation. Faith not in ourselves or anything else. Faith in Christ alone. You see, I, I, think there are, I think there are two types of people here today. I think the first type of person here is a failure. You're a failure. You've failed miserably in some way in your life. But your hope for being redeemed or or, or coming out of that failure is ultimately in yourself. And so you're trying really hard to make up for it. You're trying to make sure that your good outweighs your bad. And so you're running. You're running, but you're, you're running to the things of this world for happiness and meaning in life. And you're trying to squeeze out of those things what only God can truly give you in your heart. And I think if we're really honest with yourself, you know there's a better way. But the second type of person here today is also a failure. You fail in some way every day, you make mistakes, you mess up, sometimes really bad. But at the end of the day, what makes you different is that you know there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And you know there's a king, alive and well, seated on his throne in heaven, who loves you more than you love yourself. Who accepts you and approves of you and welcomes you because you are his because you've been purchased by His blood. You belong to Him. And nothing can change that. So you're running. You're running too, but you're running to the open arms of Jesus and His grace. But I want to say a word to you. If you, if you know you're that first person, a failure who is running to the things of this world for life and peace and meaning, I want to encourage you today and let you know, I don't care who you are and what you've done, God's grace is stronger and more powerful than all of your sin. And He invites you to run. He wants you to run to His grace, to run like Peter ran on that Sunday morning to the empty tomb with a sense of desperation, just admitting, Lord, I don't have it all together. My life is falling apart. I don't know what to do. Or maybe just say, Lord, I my life is actually pretty good, but that's the problem. The biggest st- thing standing between me and you is my own goodness, me trying too hard to be good. So, Lord, I lay it all down because I am desperate for truth and grace in the hope of healing power. If you come to the Lord, if you run to Him with that desperation, He will not turn you away. He will welcome you today. We're going to have a couple of counselors here at the front. Kyle's going to close us today. We're going to end the service with a song. We're just going to praise the name of Jesus today. But I want you to know we, we will have some counselors and if you want to ask questions about the Christian faith or maybe I'm, maybe you're the person I just described and you just want to talk to somebody about that, we are more than happy to talk with you. So as we close out this song, as we worship our risen Savior and King, don't let another day go by running in the wrong direction. Make that turn today and run To Christ and his grace alone. Thank you guys for being here. Happy Easter to you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're so thankful that by your death and resurrection, you have paid the price for our sin. And you give us new life. You give us eternal hope in your name if we turn away. And stop running to this world and turn and run to your grace, your open arms. God, you are ready and willing and eager to forgive. To draw us in. Lord, if we confess with our mouth that you are Lord and we believe in our heart that you are the Son of God and that you have been raised from the dead, we will be saved. So Jesus, give us that faith May we always run to you. We thank you, Lord, that your grace is greater than our sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.